Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stayskull, making a return from my brief hiatus last week, joined as usual by Paul Tenorio. Paul, it's a pretty weird time to be alive in the world, but um, how are you doing? How are you hanging in there? I'm doing okay considering um, I spend most of my time with my eight-month-old daughter, and, and so this won't be too big of a change dealing with you than dealing with her. Oh, very nice. Very nice. You took the words right out of mouth. You you stole my self-deprecating joke. So thank you. I'm going to like sob later and maybe use some chew toys on this show. So apologies in advance, listeners. Um, uh, obviously, as you might guess, this show is going to be pretty heavy on coronavirus and the fallout um, that's going on all around the soccer world, all around pro sports and all around MLS um, related to this global pandemic and the outbreak that's happening around it. Um before we dive into any of that, though, I do want to say, and I'm sure, Paul, you would echo this right off the top, that this is not the most important thing at the moment, right? The people that are suffering with this virus, uh, in some cases dying, um, and the people that are losing their jobs or are maybe in fear of losing their jobs or are in quarantine in different countries around the world or in different cities, even here in the U.S., um, that's obviously a lot more important than anything that we're going to talk about on this on this silly podcast. Um, but if you're listening, then you probably want to hear us talk about MLS and all of that stuff. Um, so we will get into that. Um, we will also get into some listener questions that you guys sent along over the last 24 hours. So thank you for those. Um, we'll dive into those kind of in the second half of the show. Um, but first, let's talk about this coronavirus and the suspension um, and the fallout. Um, and kind of what's coming down the pipe here um, for MLS. So let's I'll lay a little background. The league announced, oh, geez, the days are bleeding together. Um, late last week, I believe, that uh, it was going to suspend for 30 days. Um, Paul, I think it's safe to say at this point that it's going to be a lot longer than 30 days. Yeah, I don't see any way that we see the league come back before the summer, whether that's June, whether that's July, I think we'll have a better idea of that in two weeks, three weeks, once you know some of this social distancing starts to have an impact or hopefully have an impact, and we see whether or not it's flattening the curve. At that point, when the cities and the state governments have an idea of what the impact is, and, and the federal government for that matter, at that point, maybe we'll start to get a better idea of when these games come back. But if I were to guess right now, I would say June at some mid-June, July maybe, as kind of a realistic start date. But, you know, that's, just, that's pure speculation just based on what's going on right now. Yeah. And that, that obviously this has changed so much even over the last seven days, you know, thinking back, it was just a week ago tonight, we're recording here on Wednesday night, that the NBA suspended after Rudy Gobert tested positive. And that feels like it was a month ago. It uh, happened in that in that last seven days. I'm sure this will continue to develop. Of note, though, USL, which was initially on the same 30 day plan, 30 day suspension as MLS was, um, they announced earlier on Wednesday uh, that in order to align with recent CDC guidance um, on restricting public gatherings to less than 50 people, they're going to be pushing back through at least Sunday, May 10th. Um, so they're going to be they're going to be gone for a while. I would expect MLS to be on a similar sort of track. You know, I talked to a few few different clubs today that 
that were that were basically like, yeah, there's pretty much no chance we're coming back to training on Saturday, which is the first day it was going to be eligible. Teams were going to be eligible to return to the field. Um, so it's going to be really interesting, and it's obviously creating sort of a vacuum that all these teams are having to try and figure out how to operate in. So, um, Paul, you've been making some calls, right? Am I, am I blowing up your spot here? Have you not made any calls? We're checking your homework, Tenorio. Yeah, I think what you know, we all talk to people. That's part of what we do. You you talk to different people in their jobs and try to figure <laughs> out what's going on, right? What what does okay, your so, life so look what are like they now? telling? Well, I think what, what are teams up to at the moment? Right now, the people I've been talking to, I mean, there's a lot of I guess the the from from my end, a lot of it's been front office related, right? Preparing um for when the season begins again, whether that's you know, setting up kind of ideas of of what the roster should look like down the road, whether that's talking about implementing an identity, working on different formations that they could play in the season, that type of stuff. I know um, some of the people I've been talking to have been asking the same questions of me that you just asked. You know, when do you think we actually come back? We don't believe it's going to be anytime soon. You know, we're trying the best that we can to get guys to train on their own. We're sending them fitness plans and homework essentially to do to make sure that they're somewhat fit when they come back, but that's all that they can really manage right now. How about you? Yeah, Yeah, no, similar things. Um, You know, I thought it was telling that the one conversation I had with with a technical staffer in, in one club's front office, he was basically like, yeah, man, like I'm, I'm laying out training plans where I'm like dividing fields into different quadrants, um, where I can have like eight or 10 players in each quadrant at the same time so that they're getting some fitness work in. Maybe they're getting some touches, some light technical work. Um, they can all hear the coach maybe, um, but they're not all together. Like we would have to organize like locker room shifts, so one group goes in at one time for 10 minutes and then they're out and then the next group follows and then the same thing on the way back into the facility. So it's literally things to that level of detail um, that teams are talking about. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, whether or not those types of plans have to end up being utilized, we'll see. Uh, but I don't think nothing's off the table at this point. Um, so that's kind of what they're thinking about and that's what the discussions are looking like. Um but Paul, um, this break, it might help some teams. It might hurt some teams. Um, but we had a we had a listener, Michael Dodd, who asked this on on Twitter. Um, what's your sense for which teams this might help and which teams this might hurt? Well, I think there's one clear team that comes to mind that this is going to help, and that's the Chicago Fire. They had a hectic off season, to say the least, and it was a condensed off season. By the time that they did everything they needed to do, so they hired a sporting director, they hired a head coach, they hired a coaching staff, and by the time those people were in place, they had weeks left until the season started, days until preseason started, and so when you look at that lack of time, now all of a sudden they're kind of gifted this opportunity to get things in order to come up with a clear identity for the club. You know, this is this is what we want to look like as a team. This is the formation we want to play. These are the profiles of the players we want to sign. You look at the players that they signed in the window that were coming in late. You know, a couple of them stepped on the field for the first time in the second week of the season after one day of training. You know, those guys are going to have time. Two of them arrived in the United States on Saturday 
before the shutdown of the country started to occur Jeez. four or five days later, <laughs> you know, they've only had a Hell chance of a to welcome. train. Yeah, exactly. They've only had a couple of days to train with the club. Now that, you know, you assume when MLS comes back, they're going to have to have some kind of 10 to 14 day preseason to allow these teams to ramp up and be ready for games. You know, those players are going to have a chance to integrate a little bit. And and they're they're going to have had a, at least a, a couple months in some version of the United States and some version of Chicago to adjust to their new lives. Um, so I think the fire benefit in that way, um, though obviously it's difficult to try to make put a positive spin on the coronavirus. I would say that's that's probably the team that that benefits from this break. Yeah, I don't think we're trying to put a positive spin on it. It's just hey, the fire have the fire coaching staff has an off season now. Instead, where they didn't before. Um, other teams that I think it might help, I think it might help Portland. Um, I think relative to their level of talent, because I think they have a lot of talent in that team. I think relative to their level of talent, they've been awful in the first two games, or they were awful in the first two games. And so I think this break should kind of allow the coaching staff to sort of clear, clear its head in terms of what they want, um, in terms of how they want their team to play and how they want to set up. And as you mentioned, kind of that ramp up preseason number two period should allow them to maybe implement some of those ideas. So I think it could help a team like Portland. Um, I think it could help teams that are going to have heavy absences at, at Copa America um, or were going to, I should say, or even Euro. I don't know if there's any, are there any MLS players that were slated to go to Euro, Paul? I don't even I think know. there were a few. I think there were a few. I think Minnesota United has one or two. I think there were, you know, but not, not at the rate that we would have seen for Copa America. Yeah, so Copa America would have been a bigger deal. One team that would have been hit pretty heavy would have been Seattle, um, with Nico Lodero most likely going to Uruguay, Raul Ruiz Diaz for Peru, Xavier Arriaga potentially for Ecuador. So that's you know three top line players for them, or three of their highest paid players um, that could have been gone for an extended period that now will not be missing time, and you know at least due to international duty. Who knows what the actual season and the schedule will look like for MLS, but those teams won't have to deal with that. And then, of course, kind of the expansion teams, right? They have two games on tape now. So Miami and Nashville can kind of go back and say, okay, what what was working, what wasn't working, and and kind of evaluate and push forward in that same way that I was talking about with Portland. Shoot, you know, Miami... Like they have some time to get healthy and and a little bit more runway uh, to get in that third DP potentially, um, which leads me into my next uh, topic here. Paul is how is this going to affect the transfer window for MLS? Um, now, this is kind of two pronged. MLS currently is open in the transfer window and will be open for almost two more months in the primary window. Then the window will shut. Teams will not be able to buy or loan players, get them in, or trade for players. Um, until July when it reopens for another month with the secondary transfer window. So that's the background. How do we think this suspension and, and kind of not just the suspension, but the actual disease outbreak and the economic implications are going to affect the transfer window? Well, the conversation begins in one area. And I'm sorry in advance, Sam, because I know we've talked about this as a story idea, but I'm about to blow up our spot here. The economic impact on the transfer window is going to be enormous, and it's going to be far-reaching beyond Major League Soccer and throughout all of the global football market as we know it. I mean, these teams are owned by billionaire owners who have their money in a market that has crashed significantly. and which, A stock market. A stock market that has crashed significantly that also own teams that have lost 
a ton of revenue and will lose more revenue as these games are not played or played in front of empty stadiums. Advertisers who are going to be unable or unwilling to spend at the levels they were to to buy stadium naming rights or jersey rights or boards on the side of the field. You know, we're talking about, you know, potential TV deals that are impacted because networks have taken a massive hit and their advertisers are cutting back on their spend. This is going to have a lasting effect on soccer as we know it. I think there are going to be teams that are less willing to spend, period. There are going to be teams that are less willing to spend at the levels that we've seen in the global transfer market over the last few years. And especially for a league like Major League Soccer that doesn't have the revenue on the TV side with longer-term contracts like the Premier League might, it's going to really hit hard. And I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see teams pull way back in the rest of this window and in the summer window from some of the plans that they had until those owners are able to get an understanding of what the revenue is going to look like in the future, you know, what they need in order to kind of get their teams back running again and the profits running again. And then, you know, until the market stabilizes to some degree and, some of their businesses get back to a, a good place if that if that does happen. So, you know, you cannot talk about the transfer window without recognizing that the current financial crisis caused by coronavirus is going to dictate, I think, the prices and the frequency, the levels of transfers that we see. Yeah, I pretty much agree with all of that. And a couple other things that I wanted to add in. Um, one is obvious, one a little bit more of a deep cut. Um, so one obvious, MLS teams have only played two games. Some have only played one in the league. Um, there's just not much of a sample size to know what you have and to know what you need. There are still a lot of unknowns. And if this drags on towards the end of the primary transfer window or even towards the start of the secondary transfer window, right, that lack of information is probably going to slow the MLS market down, both in terms of trades and transfers, right? If you don't know what you what you need or what you want, um, then you're going to give your current guys a little more time. I think that's pretty natural. One other way. And this sort of goes into a new initiative, that new U22 initiative that still hasn't been all the way sorted out, but looks like it's coming down the pipe. Um, and the general trend in MLS towards signing younger players out of leagues in South America or elsewhere. Those younger players, by very definition, don't have as many games on tape, right? They don't have as many pro games in their careers. In some cases, you're talking 20 or less, right, or thereabouts. Um, and so with this break, they're not playing, they're not adding to that sample size. Um, so that's, you know, maybe going to depress that market a little bit. I, I, I don't know that for sure, but I think that's an interesting thing to sort of keep an eye on once it, once it opens back up, our team's going to be willing to shell out three, $4 million for a 19, 20 year old who maybe has a season of experience versus a 19, 20 year old who would have had a season and a half or two seasons of experience, right? That's going to change the calculus a little bit. So I think that one's pretty interesting. And I did want to talk about the economic standpoint as well from a slightly different standpoint though. Um, you know, we've, I think both of us have heard sort of some talk about MLS teams maybe being forced to furlough employees or to even lay employees off depending on how this goes. 
Um, and if they lose some home games and if they lose a lot of revenue and, you know, I've heard talk of, you know, one team projecting maybe up to a 20% decrease in projected revenue for 2020. And I don't want to minimize that. That's obviously very real. But when you're talking about MLS, even the, the biggest teams, right, they're, they're pulling in 50, 60 million a year in revenue, which is, you know, for people like you and me, Paul, that's a lot of money. But for someone who's worth two, three billion dollars, like a lot of these MLS owners are, you know, when you're talking about 10 million out of 50, that's not all that much to them, in my opinion, anyway. And when it comes to laying people off in a crisis, and that's what we're going through, right? A real crisis and putting them in a situation where maybe they're not able to pay their bills or they're going to have a hard time putting food on the table or getting health care or any of those things or paying rent any of those things, I think it would be good and necessary for those MLS owners that at least th- at least those that have the means, because you know, I don't want to say that all of them do. I don't know what their bank accounts look like. But at least those that have the means to sort of step up and say, you know what, employees, I got you guys. Don't worry about it. It's going to be good. You're going to be okay. Um, I would like to see that happen. Hopefully it does. Hopefully they don't get into a situation where they're having to lay people off. Um, but from what I've been told anyway, um, that is a possibility. So, um, quickly before you move on, Sam, I mean, what would the PR side of it look like? I mean, even just letting alone PR, right. But like, this is a league that just took an expansion free fee from Charlotte for $325 million to turn around more than enough to cover MLS employee payroll for the entire league for a couple of months. So to turn, to turn around, (laughs) to turn around and start to furlough or lay employees off after taking that kind of expansion fee and, and multiple, Now we don't know if they paid it all in full or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That money is there and it's coming in some form. And I just think it would be, an awful look for the league if that is the path that some team owners take. And it's something that the league should be examining in order to avoid. Because in in this marketplace, sports-wise, with the leagues you're competing against, I, I just can't imagine what kind of hit the league would take if it started to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think regardless of any PR hit, just do the right thing, you know? Just do the right thing. Do right by your people. And that'll pay off in the long run karmically, um, you know, and and tangibly with your employees and, you know, them liking you and want, wanting to work for your organization. Uh, before we move on, any other thoughts on uh, on coronavirus and MLS being suspended that, that you need to get off your chest before we dig into these cu- this, these questions that we got on Twitter? I just think that this is you know, we should also remember just how unique this situation is. And it's it's actually pretty remarkable to be living through it, to be working through it, to be speaking to league officials and team officials as they navigate an unprecedented global event. And I think, um, you know, the leagues are going to be judged a little bit on how they're able to handle this and, and and to I think so far they've done the right things. They've they've put sports um, behind the the things that really matter in life. And um, I commend you know the NBA and MLS were the first two leagues to start to do it. The Ivy League I should should point out was the very first. But I think that so far they've done the right things, and I hope that continues. Especially speaking to what we just talked about regarding the employees within the league. For sure. Also, stay inside. Don't be dumb. 
You know, you might be healthy, you might not be worried about you, but who knows who you might come into contact with and who they might come into contact with. So let's all do our part to uh, to flatten that curve and make this hopefully a little less bad than it otherwise could be. Hey, this is producer Daryl cutting in to let you know that today's episode of Allocation Disorder is sponsored by The Black Tux. Did you know that when Paul and Sam record Allocation Disorder, they're not just sitting around in their sweatpants. These guys are dressed to the nines, full tuxedo, like two James Bonds, only better looking and with a lot more knowledge about the homegrown player rule. Seriously, Daniel Craig does not know his gam from his tam. If you would like to dress as sharply as Paul and Sam do when they're recording Allocation Disorder, you can do so via theblacktux.com. You can rent or buy a suit or tuxedo, as well as all the various accoutrements like shirts and ties and bow ties and studs and cufflinks and shoes. All the things one needs to look good for a big event. Could be your wedding, could be prom, could just be some sort of award ceremony. Anytime you need to look your best, the Black Tux has got you covered head to toe. You pick your style, you tell them your size, they ship it to you. And with the free home try-on, you can make sure that the fit is correct. If it's not, there's time to change it up and they'll send it back to you in time for your event. So whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at The Black Tux. To get 10% off, go to theblacktux.com and use code SOCCER. That's SOCCER at theblacktux.com for 10% off your purchase. One final time in case you weren't listening, go to theblacktux.com and get 10% off using the code SOCCER. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. I'll now send you back to the impeccably dressed Paul and Sam as they get into listener questions. With that, um, let's dive into this this Q and A. And let's, you know, that was kind of a, a little bit of a depressing opening to the show. So, so let's start with a fun one. This is from uh, Johnny Foot Golf on Twitter. Um, best food slash accommodations for MLS cities that you visited. Which do you enjoy visiting the most? Um, Paul, I'm going to just take Orlando out of the equation for you. Okay. You can't answer Orlando. Well, thank you. Um, now I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, (laughs) I think that my favorite city that I've hit, I guess I've got two. So I'm going to take two and that hopefully leave you in the lurch a little bit. My number one is Montreal. It it was a, I I did that twice and you know, First of all, it's like a it's like going on. I mean, it's not like going. On, it is an international trip, but it, you really feel like you're in Europe or somewhere. <laughs> it literally, it totally literally is going to a different country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you come here for your geography at Allocation Disorder, guys. Um, it, it, it was it was really cool. I stayed in old Montreal, and it was beautiful. I spent as much time as I could walking around, uh, and I love duck confit. So I was in heaven, man. I was eating duck confit oh just nonstop. I did two trips to Montreal in in the 2015 season and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And the other is Portland. I really really enjoy every time I go to Portland. Stadium's easy to get to downtown. Uh I loved the hotels where I stayed. Great food. Um uh, trying to think of the different places I ate in Portland. Le Pigeon is one. Um just delicious. And uh, yeah, I always try to find new restaurants in Portland when I'm there. 
So I, I and they've got great press box food as well. I should point that out too. That that puts them way up. They the do. List. Yeah, their press box is pretty cool. It's actually like hanging on top of or on the underside of one of the roofs of of Providence Park. It's kind of wild. Um, also, you're hitting that expense account account hard, huh, Paul? When you're when you're traveling, good for you, buddy. You got to do it. You got to. Um, you're, you're the, gotta, re- you're the reason why print media is dying. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, am I allowed to give my favorite cities? No. Is this is this are we are we up for discussion? I suppose. Um I'm I'm gonna pick a I'll just rattle them off off the top of my head as we go. Vancouver, excellent city. Um Portland. Um I like Portland, but I I think it's incredibly overrated. There's a take for you. Um sorry Timbers fans. Um Vancouver is top notch, gorgeous, good food, easy to walk around, stadiums right downtown, really easy to get to. Um I'm a little biased. I used to live in this city. Um, but I always like going back to Salt Lake, um, uh, seeing my people out there. It's admittedly not the most exciting place, but you know, sentimental value. Um, you know, I'm not going to pick any of the big obvious ones, Chicago, LA, New York. Um, but, um, I would say Vancouver is way up there. Seattle's way up there. Montreal is way up there for me too. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any, anyone I'm missing here. Um, this isn't an MLS city, but it is a regular stop on the MLS circuit. Shout out to Tucson. Love Tucson. (laughs) Well, I would say there are, I would like to give props to Don Garber and the board of governors for the expansion cities that are coming online because I'm looking forward to trips to Nashville and Austin, especially, uh, I think Miami. Are, I'm I looking think forward Mi- to Miami. Miami will be great as well. I mean, you you've got roots there in Miami. I spent a lot of time in Florida, <laughs> lived there for a couple of years, went down to Miami a decent shit. amount. My my wife's grandfather lived there, so um, yeah, of course, Miami is great. But I think Austin and Nashville, two cities I've never visited. Oh, I've been to Nashville. I went to watch Northwestern football there, um, so I have been to Nashville. But I'm I'm looking forward <laughs> to those two and. Uh, I would. Can I also throw some of like the worst experiences I've had? You know, oh for- yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, let's just. I'm just going based purely on like press box food on this one. Okay, but like, just get to it. I mean, Orlando press box food was terrible. I had oh, to live through that. Oh my god, it was so bad. You're throwing Orlando under the bus. Clearly, they DC need to cater United, from the ravenous pig. Yes, uh, yes. Shout future. out to the rap- DC United when they were at RFK Stadium, though, is the absolute champion for the worst press box food I've ever had. Maybe anywhere covering college football, pro yeah, football, and it, it was w- the worst. I mean, would you ha- would you have it any other way though? You know, it has yeah. to be like that. Yeah, I would have preferred not having box lunches. It was terrible. You had to pay for them. Five dollars. That was even. You worse. also had to do that. You also had to do that at uh, Chivas USA games way back in the day. So um, I also covered go. a Kansas anyway, City game in a minor league baseball question, Paul. Sorry. Okay, you're right. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, Sam. Um, here's one. Looking at the fact that I'm predicting we come back in the summer, I think you're kind of on that same scale. Uh, Otis Alt asks, do you see MLS foregoing the playoffs and trying to squeeze in a 34-game regular season with no playoffs, crown a champion at the end? Uh, no. 
I think MLS will never get rid of playoffs. It's very important to the league. Um, you know, they switched to the new format of the one and done single elimination last year. I think they really liked it. I really liked it. I think it did. It was good for interest and TV ratings and all of those important things that the league pays attention to and broadcasters pay attention to um, and drive money, um, which which rules all, of course. Um, so, no, I don't think so. Maybe, you know. Maybe we see something, and Paul, we had talked about this offline, um, but maybe we see something where it's like a 24-game regular season, and maybe it's a balanced schedule in each conference. So West only plays West home and away. East only plays East home and away. There's no crossover games. And then you just go maybe a full playoff. Maybe you go to a just West champion, East champion format. Um, but I don't think they're going to get rid of playoffs, and I don't even think they're going to do a West champion, East champion. I think they'll have a full playoff because those are kind of the games that that MLS gets some exposure from, and they want to keep that. Yeah, and I think that'll come down to also what the TV networks want. I mean, those conversations are not going to take place just at MLS headquarters. When they make this decision over what the league Correct. looks like, it'll you know ESPN ultimately will make that decision. And if ESPN wants multiple playoff games, there will be multiple playoff games. I can promise you ESPN does not want no playoffs. Yes, correct. That would uh, that would not be great for the league interest-wise. Um, moving on. Uh, Paul, how do you expect a delayed season to impact player contracts, especially if it runs past November or even December? And that's from Dan Meyercourt. Well, I think, uh, first of all, most contracts – all, all contracts that run through the entire year run through December 31st for Major League Soccer. So I don't right. think they have a an impact on, on that. Um, certainly there will be discussions that are held with the MLS Players Association because there are stipulations in the CBA about how much of an offseason players get. So if you end the season in mid-December, you have to have X number of weeks off. I think it's like at least six weeks. Um, I think it's I maybe say more than that. six for the champions. Right. So, you know, you're talking about preseason now starting later, and MLS is already trying to extend its regular season from what I've heard and been told. They're trying to move it up. Yeah. They'd like to move it up to, to kind of ease the schedule congestion. So there's this kind of domino effect that starts to happen. Um, but I don't think it has a major impact on player contracts. At the end of the season, I am interested and how it impacts player contracts that end in the summer. So a lot of guys that you see on short-term loans, um, you right. know, how does that have an impact? Guys like Reggie Cannon, who signed an extension with the anticipation that they would be sold in the summer. Uh, a player like Chris Durkin, who's on loan in Europe. Uh, how does that impact his loan? How does it impact his role with DC United? You know, Those are the questions that I think are most interesting to me. Locadia as, is one. Uh yeah, with Cincinnati. with Cincinnati. I believe his loan expires at the end of May, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. And I don't anticipate that those would change, um, unless things get really really wacky. Because you know, I think Europe's going to try and start as close to on time as they can next season. So I don't think that those things are going to change necessarily. And there's no there's not going to be probably any legal recourse for them to change. Those are all by date. It's not by game or anything like that. So it's all by date. All right. Well, Sam, I think it's my turn to ask a question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a tough one, but I think one that um that, that you've written about before. What this this one comes from Alex, um, I think Alex in Houston, Horston. Um, 
What is the League Insider <laughs> owner executive opinion of the Houston Dynamo ownership and front office? Um, and will it be allowed, and I'll, I'll quote him here, to, quote, destroy MLS credibility in the nation's fourth largest market? Uh, <laughs> you you left out his earlier phrasing where he called them a clown show as I well. I, um, I chose my quotes. Man. Carefully. I'm going to be honest. I haven't had a ton of conversations with with people around the league about the Dynamo. Um, the ones that I have had, um, they're just sort of confused. They're, they think it's a mess. Uh, I think, you know, speaking – if they were speaking honestly and in private, they might agree with Alex. Alex's characterization of at least ownership is kind of a clown show. Uh, that team doesn't spend any money. They did a lot of things wrong. Um kind of right as they opened the stadium in downtown Houston. And they've seen the, those mistakes manifest on the field and off over recent years. Um, but they're pretty consistently at the bottom or very near to the bottom in MLS and total spend. Um, and, you know, Houston should be a good soccer market. There's no reason it shouldn't be. Um, just the number of people there, the demographics of that city, uh, the fact that they do have a stadium right downtown. Um, I know it's not an easy city to get around, but, you know, that is an area that people are accustomed to going to. It's right near the Astros Stadium um, for games. So, you know, that should be so much better than it is. And, and you know, the crazy thing is it is it kind of was better when they were playing out at Robertson Stadium, which is the University of Houston's college football, or was University of Houston's college football stadium. Um, and it's kind of crazy that they've taken steps back. Um, so, yeah, the opinion's not high, as you might expect, Alex, um, at least of ownership and their level of commitment and their level of spend. I do think people are a little bit more optimistic. They have a new president there who seems to, seems to be on top of things. Um, you know, I wrote an article recently about them kind of shifting emphasis and and create devoting resources towards their academy which they're going to need to do if they're going to have any chance of succeeding at the budget level they're at um for the first team so i think they're starting to get there a little bit they're still pretty far behind um but yeah it's not it's not looked at as one of the uh i guess clubs at the forefront of the league i'll put it like that um anything to add there paul just that they should get their academy up and running. It's a really obvious market where the academy should be thriving and producing several homegrowns just like their their Texas rivals in, in Dallas, just like in a, a city like Chicago where now you're seeing them finally sign homegrowns. I mean, that's an academy that should be kind of creating the the core of, of that first team roster, and uh, it hasn't been doing that. Sure. Okay. Um, I think this is my favorite question that we received. Uh, it's from our dear friend and colleague, Meg Linehan. What exactly do you think the Tampa Bay Rowdies doll that he just bought on eBay while drunk at a concert is going to do to our other colleague, Pablo Moore? Paul, your thoughts? I think that that doll is going to end up being one of Pablo's closest friends and confidants. Um, I think <laughs> I think they're, you know... Pablo likes to frame it like the doll may come alive and murder him. But if that doll comes alive, Pablo will make it a beverage and sit it down and, and talk to him about life and what's going right and what's going wrong. And, and soon will be, uh, you know, one of one of Pablo's good buddies. So I, I'm not concerned about I Pablo kinda like at that. all. Maybe, maybe Pablo will put him in the, in the passenger seat of cars when he's cruising around the country. Or, you know, maybe he'll put him like like on top of like on top of a car on top of the cab as he's like working under the hood maybe he can be his mechanic doll 
Um, pa- Pablo has an un- way, unbelievable. Weird. Sorry, I'm 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 talking over you. I'm trying to get better at that. Um, he's got an unbelievable no, no. ability Go. to make to get people to open up, and I feel like that Tampa Bay Rowdies doll would be just <laughs> another example of it. I mean, let's be real. There's going to be some weird stuff that goes on between Pablo and that doll. I don't trust either of them. Um, I don't want to talk about it anymore because it creeps me out. All right. That means it's time for me to ask you another question. Thank you, Meg, for uh, <laughs> taking part here. Okay. Here's a, here's a nitty-gritty roster rule question. Uh, comes in from Jordan. How are salary budget charges calculated? Are they based on salary, guaranteed compensation, which the MLSPA lists, or something else? How do transfer fees factor into things? Sam, this is an easy one. What do you got? Oh, man. Um, if I mess up, correct me, okay? Go easy on me. Uh, it's based on salary, and then any acquisition costs um, are added into that. Um, and then you less any allocation money that is then applied uh, to that player. So basically, I'll just devise a hypothetical example, right? Um, say a team is paying a player $400,000 per season okay so that's your starting point 400k um say they bought said player uh for two million dollars um say it's a four-year contract and they decide that they want to pay a million dollars of that fee up front okay so that means a million is going to hit um right away and then say 500 in year two um 250 in year three 250 in year four then that's how they decide to structure it um so you'll take those million 500 250 250 apply them to the 400 in each year. So first year it'll be 1.4, uh, then nine, then 650, then 650. Um, did I get that right, Paul? I'm going to actually step in and correct you here with a player where there's that much money involved because they are technically a designated player. Yeah. He would have to be. Yes. That, yeah. The example was bad. There, yeah. That but, money, that money would then would have to be, um, split evenly over the life of the guaranteed years of the deal so right. if it's two so million dollars it's five hundred thousand a year plus the four hundred thousand in guaranteed compensation it's nine hundred thousand per year and it is guaranteed compensation so any bonuses in that contract that are deemed to, to be achievable bonuses would count right. toward that cap, hit. cap it's yes. not just the base salary that you see on mlspa but i would also warn when you see guaranteed compensation on it's the it's not MLSPA necessarily site, guaranteed compensation yeah correct <laughs> it's it's that they're basically averaging out bonuses that that may be one-year bonuses averaging them out over the life of the the contract as well so that's where you see a lot of and they and they by the way they also are using non-guaranteed seasons in that guaranteed comp um which is why a lot of GMs say it's not an accurate number. That's where the problems come in because they're they're averaging in option years as well. So um, basically, the easiest way to think about it is amortize the transfer fee, add it to the guaranteed salary, and there you go. And then you subtract any allocation money that they apply. So any Tamar Gam. So if a team wanted, say, that nine hundred thousand dollar player, right? The the four hundred plus salary plus 500 um in acquisition costs say that they didn't have a dp spot for him well then they would have to use allocation money to buy him down to the max budget charge whatever it might be that year um or lower if they wanted to so um that's where that comes into play um and then obviously the three designated players count at the max budget charge unless they're young dps in which case they count at 150 or 200 uh is that complicated enough for you um there <laughs> um <laughs> anyway we don't uh we don't need to go deeper into in, in depth on that um 
let's see. Let's let's get weird. Let's stay let's stay in this space. Can you clarify the new young DP rule and how it relates to discretionary TAM, if at all? For example, can Chicago buy Ali Seda down in the summer and sign a third DP? And that is from True Marty Party. Uh, I think a fire Twitter legend. Legend. I think that's fair to say. Um, Paul, what you got for him? Yeah. So let's split this question up into two things. First of all, Ali Seda does not apply to the new young DP rule yet because the new young DP rule is not in effect. So right now, Ali Seda is just a normal young DP. Those now, new under up, 22 slots. Yeah, back up even. even yeah, the, the, the young DP rule that he's talking about is that MLS is looking to create three slots for players under the age of 22, 22 or younger, um, that can be signed w- without getting into that part of it yet, because I think we have another question about specifically the U22 initiative. That hasn't happened yet. So Alaseda is just a young DP. Can they buy him down if his budget number is less than a million dollars plus the max budget charge so this year 1.6125 million then yes they can buy him down with targeted allocation money which would thus open up a dp spot in the summer the question is do they want to and really the bigger question is do they have enough targeted allocation money to do that because when you're fitting somebody under the cap right now aliceda is a one hundred and fifty thousand dollar cap hit do you have enough GAM to buy whatever DP you sign down to 150000 And then do you have enough TAM to buy Aliceda down from whatever his cap hit number is to a manageable number under your salary budget? That would be the question. Can they do it under the rules? Yes. Do they have the allocation money to do it? We don't know because that money is, is uh, secret. It's hidden from the public. And thus, our analysis can only go so far. Um, couldn't have said it better myself there, Paul. Um, and it gives an easy transition to the question I'm going to ask you. If this new U22 initiative goes into effect, is there a cap on salary that those players could be paid? This is from the there there. Um, yes, there is. And I should have looked into this before the show. Um, help me out here, Paul. We've reported on this. I should know this off the yes, top of my head. The, but... the cap is the senior budget charge. So that this year, that's six hundred twelve thousand. The max budget charge, uh, six hundred twelve thousand five hundred. I believe this year that number obviously will continue to go up yeah. year after year. That is the max salary that would be allowed for those players according to our reporting. Now, I just want to point out again: this rule has not come into effect yet. It's still being discussed. So right now, the format that Sam and I have reported is max budget charge is the cap on salary, no cap on transfer fees is the, the current form. But it again, it's not finalized. There are still discussions going on around this initiative. So whether that's what it looks like when it finally gets, gets introduced or not, we don't know. But that's what we're hearing right now. Paul, this one's from at Cascadia guy. Um Thanks to the coronavirus suspension, um, a seasonal shift, a calendar shift, um, which has long been avoided by MLS, is now conceivable. Would Garber go for that? Um, That being changing the MLS calendar um, from a spring to fall schedule to a fall to spring schedule, I presume. No, I don't think so. I mean, logistically, there is just so much that would have to change for that to happen. And even though it's setting up to start the season potentially at the end of the summer, I just don't see a way to make it happen. Multiple reasons. One, are there enough 
games or teams rather that are based in southern cities or playing in domes that you could host games through December, January, February. Uh, I don't know that that the league has that yet. Two, how do you begin to change and alter the television contracts to account for a new league calendar? I mean, right now, the deals with ESPN and Fox are based on the current calendar as they stand. They're not based on a fall to spring calendar. So you'd have to go back to the TV networks and renegotiate when the the season starts, when your games are being played, what when your contract ends now. Um, All these types of things would be up for debate again. So just getting into those logistics alone, I don't think it's possible to do it. You'd have to try to do it when a contract is up or you'd have to try to renegotiate a deal. And I don't think MLS would be up for renegotiating a deal before they negotiate their new deal. So um, logistically, it's, it's not conceivable, even though theoretically you could just start games at the end of the summer due to coronavirus and say, oh, it's the beginning of the season. And we can, you know, theoretically run the season that way. I just think logistically with what you have with your with your partners on every level, contract wise, that it's just there's no way. Sam, do you am I seeing things wrong? No, I think on a very simpler level, uh, MLS struggles to attract fans to not huge playoff games in cold weather. And even if you account for a winter break, even if you do all of those things, it's just from that level, it's not going to happen. All right, moving on. Sorry to to rain on that parade. Um, oh, I've been really looking forward to asking you this question, Sam. I just I've been I've been excited for which way <laughs> your answer is going to go. This is from Michael yeah. Karsner. Assuming there was a full season played, what is your over under? Do you take the over or the under twenty eight goals plus assist for Jordan Morris? I think that's a really good question, and I think he would be very close to that. But I would say I think I would take the under. Uh, Morris was excellent last year, particularly in the second half. He turned himself into a dynamite winger um, in MLS, one of the best in the league. He's got a awesome striker to cross the ball to in Raul Ruiz Diaz, so he can rack up assists pretty well. Um, but I would put it, I would put him more at like twenty-five, maybe like a fifteen and ten season. Still really, really good, but not quite to twenty-eight. Well, he had 10 and 7 last year in 26 games, 3 and 1 in the playoffs. So, 30 games last year, he had 13 and 8 is 21, and he played pretty darn well last year. So, I I I think that was I think it's an easy Vegas bet there for me. I know he started off with a with a couple goals against the Fire, but I will say most of his production came in the second half. So, you know, he was trending up. But um all right, this is this is one that I've been looking forward to, Paul. Um, how real is a possibility of a 50-team merger between MLS and League MX? We saw this pop up again, I want to say, earlier this week. Um, ESPN Deportes' John Sutcliffe reported something about it. I think it's I think it's realistic in that there is legitimate interest from both sides to find a way to increase the amount of competition, on-field competition, meaningful competition, between these two leagues. I think both leagues have interest in monetizing their relationship and seeing that they can better monetize if they are together. Mexico has better entry into the American market, and the U.S. and Major League Soccer in Canada have a chance to grab hold of a larger audience that watches League MX. So 
I do believe there's interest there. Do I think a joint league happens anytime soon? I don't know. I don't think so. But it wouldn't. I wouldn't be totally shocked. I think what we'll see is what we're seeing now, which is more competitions being formed. The League's Cup, uh, Champions League, I think could potentially change in its format. I think we could see um, Major League Soccer looking to close the length of its offseason by creating another tournament or some kind of tournament between League MX and Major League Soccer to try to shorten the length of its offseason. Those types of competitions I think we'll absolutely see. Um, I don't know financially what it would look like to create a merger between these two leagues, first of all. And then second of all, the sheer number of teams makes it very difficult to, to see one league. But I do think they that this region understands they have to do more to compete with Europe and that they have the ability to do it if they do it right. And getting all of the parties that need to come to the table there is going to take some time. And this goes beyond just MLS and League MX. It goes down into South America as well. But I do think that there are um, there's a lot of interest in trying to be able to match UEFA and the Champions League and the money that exists around that. And I, I think it'll start with a greater partnership in some form between League MX and, and Major League Soccer. I agree with all of that. I do think that this is the end game at some point, and, and I'm not saying it's soon. Um, I do think it could be sooner than maybe we all expect, but I do think eventually the leagues will kind of join together, and you'll see some sort of competition. What that might look like, I have no idea, uh, but maybe that's a good thought exercise for us to tackle in an article or on a podcast during this uh, during this break that we're on in MLS. I will say one other factor. You know, This is kind of where the game's going. You know, we see the talk of the Super League in Europe from time to time. Belgium and Holland are talking about merging their leagues. Um, so this is this isn't just an MLS League MX thing. This is kind of where the sport seems to be headed. Um, so I think this is eventually where it ends up here. Um, but we'll see. Did I ask that last question to you? I did, right? So you, yes, it's your turn. I think you were supposed to ask me that one, and I stole it. It's okay. I've got one for you here. And do you think there's any impact on the new expansion team's debut seasons due to Corona? And I'm interpreting this. I guess we'll interpret this as meaning Miami and Nashville and not having an impact on the upcoming expansion. Oh, I interpreted it as the other Austin, Sacramento, St. Louis. and I think that's too easy of an answer. I I don't think it impacts them at all. So let's focus on, do you think it impacts the season that Nashville will have in MLS and the season Miami will have in MLS? Well, I mean, of course it will impact. It'll impact every team, right? But um, will it help them? Will it hurt them? I think if anything, it helps them a little bit. Um, I think it kind of allows them to reset, like I said earlier, um, get their self together, get their heads clear, and, and they can have a second preseason in the ramp up. Um, so I think it helps them. And, and with Miami, I think it allows them to sort of buy some time until that third DP comes in, whenever that might happen. And it allows them to get healthy a little bit, too. So I think it helps. We just got a couple more here, Paul. Um, this is a here's a I'll throw you an alley-oop. Let's see if you can dunk it. What's the best way to learn more about in depth about MLS cap, roster rules, CBA, etc.? That one's from Logan Deeney. Thank you, Logan, for the question. 
Yeah, thanks for teeing me up here, Logan. I'm, at first, I was a little <laughs> bit offended that you would ask this question to this podcast because there's only one place. There's only yeah, one you're, place you're here. to learn more, <laughs> and it's here on allocation disorder with Paul Tenorio and Sam Stayskull. We are the only two if you people. You made it this far. Hopefully, you learned something. That's right. That's right. We we even though Sam got one answer wrong, I botched it. I can promise you that this is the place to come to get accurate We're information. Edit that out. We're going to help you out here. Do not edit that out. I, I like that I had to help Sam, but Logan, there's only one place to go, and it's allocation disorder. And we thank you for being here with us today, Logan. <laughs> All right. Last soccer-related question, and I'm sure we'll end the pod on the, the, the final question we have there, but the last soccer-related question here, uh, Sam, Beside this is from Marcus Awerko, besides the usual Dallas RSL, Seattle chatter, which teams have built a promising academy pipeline that will pay dividends in the next couple of years? Well, Marcus, you left out two big ones, man. You left out Red Bull, who have maybe have done this the best of any team in the league um, in terms of actually creating a pipeline that they can replace guys with and, and sustain. Um, and Philly, who are starting to get, I think, three, four starters into the mix um, with Brendan Aronson, Mark McKenzie, you know, Matt Real, not not going to be a full time starter. But, you know, we've seen him play Anthony Montana. Same thing. I don't know if I'm forgetting anyone there. Um, so those are two um, right there in terms of others. You know, I'm having a hard time here off the top of my head, Paul. Maybe you can help me out if I'm if you feel like I'm missing anyone. I'm going to be interested to see what Miami's doing. Yeah, um, I, I, that was going to be the one I said. I think Miami is going to be a team that that does well in the academy. I think I think we'll start to see Atlanta yeah. produce some homegrowns. Yeah. They've definitely invested in the academy there. And the other one I don't want to leave out because they've done a nice job kind of scouting around the country. And I think we'll see... Again, similar to Atlanta, the investment that's occurred over the last few years paying off, that's Sporting Kansas City. I think I think we'll see, you know, more players come through. We we saw a couple early semi hits, at least they got on the field for the senior team and Jalen Lindsay and Busio. Um, but they, they have a pretty deep young academy. They've invested a lot of money in it. And and so I, I could see them having some homegrowns come through. Um but Miami's probably the big one there that I think um, will be interesting to watch. Um, also the two LA teams. LAFC's kids, you know, they started kind of, I think, with 13s, and they've aged up now. They're getting into the U17, U19 age range now. So they're starting to get to that place, and the Galaxy simply have to do better, straight up. Um, and, you know, you mentioned SKC. We've talked a lot about Dallas. We need to see more of these kids, A, get a chance, but B, when they do get the chance, because a lot of them do get the chance. When they do get the chance, actually step up and take it and become a real starter and become maybe even an all-star or a star or a player that can go on and get sold um, because we haven't seen that um, apart from a few kind of outlier cases, and that needs to change for MLS to grow. Um, okay, last thing, Paul, scale of 1 to 10, <laughs> what level of freakout are you at right now? And that is from Trevor Davidson. Trevor, thanks for looking out for our, uh, for our mental health, being interested there. I would say I'm at a solid 4. I'm fluctuating between a four and a six, depending on the minute of the day. I read this story. And is, this, is this 10 being most freaking yeah, out? Yeah, 10 okay. being the most. I, I read a story yesterday, or maybe it was earlier today, that you know the studies coming out of China are showing that there actually is a much larger impact on children and infants than has been reported. 
so that immediately jumped my freak out level to 10 yeah, because I have an eight that's... month old. Um, I've tried to bring myself back down to, you know, that four to six range. Um, I've had a couple glasses of wine tonight, so I'm at a four currently. But if if Whoa, those if those numbers are true, drunk are accurate, uh, then I'm back up to ten. But right now, uh, okay. if I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I need more sources. Sam, right. well, where are hopefully, you? Hopefully, those are not accurate, and and you don't need to be at a ten. I'm probably like a three or a four. Um, you know, personally, I think I'm going to be fine, but societally, this is obviously pretty bad. And I think it's going to get worse here, uh, pretty soon. Um, you know, we've seen the number of positive tests. I saw something on Twitter today, so hopefully it was true. Basically, I think it took 110 days to get the first hundred thousand global positive tests and the next hundred thousand. So from hundred to 2000, it was like 15 or 20 days or something like that. And that's going to continue to shorten. Um, for a while here. So this is going to be pretty scary and it's going to be pretty crazy. Um, but I think there are some silver linings in this dark cloud. Um, you know, I think in my own personal life, I think I've seen people in my social circles, friends and family start to kind of take care of each other better. Um, even if that's from afar. Um, so I think that's been kind of cool to see. And I think I've seen a lot of people, you know, online or elsewhere start to kind of take better care of their fellow man, um, whether that's through a Venmo payment or helping somebody get groceries at the store or, you know, just simple acts of kindness. I feel like I've seen more of those recently. And so I'm trying to focus on those and less on the, uh, on the scary facts and figures that are out there while still being conscious of them, but trying not to get bogged down in them. Um, so that's kind of where my head's at right now, but I think, uh, you know, hopefully this will turn out, um, not so terrible. Um, and you know, hopefully we can all take care of each other and take care of ourselves and stay safe, um, be smart and, uh, be good to everyone. So I think with that, I'm going to sign off. You, You have anything else you want to say, Paul? No, just if you need to pick me up, go watch videos of the dolphins and the canals in Venice. And at least you'll feel a little bit better. Oh, I haven't seen that. Or or go watch videos of New Who. Um, anyway, uh, with that, thanks for listening, uh, especially <laughs> if you made it all the way to the end. Um, I am Sam. He is Paul. We are signing off. Until next time, this has been Allocation Disorder. Have a good one. 